Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. A few years ago, a phenomenon swept through the United States and around the world. It was called the Ice Bucket Challenge, and it raised $200 million for the ALS Foundation and its global partners. And the woman you are about to meet knows a lot about the Ice Bucket Challenge and the young man whose friends created the fundraising stunt in his honor that continues to this day. Why? Well, because she is his mother. In the spotlight, Nancy Frades. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Candy. Great to be here. You've been on my bucket list to interview yet again so that I could update people on your story. Thank you so much for agreeing to come here today. Before we dive in, I thought I'd ask you a handful of questions that give our listeners just a glimpse into your personality, which I know (laughs) is amazing. We call this Candio's lightning round. Five questions, five short answers. Here we go. Are you a good singer? No. (laughs) Food or drink you simply cannot live without? Pasta. Favorite sports team and player? Tom Brady. But the Boston Red Sox are my favorite sports team. What is your pet peeve in life? People who assume things. Don't assume. When you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? A teacher. Well, there you go. We dove in. We got a little bit about you. And now we're going to get into the questions. Your son was given two to three years to live when Mm -hmm. he was diagnosed with ALS in March of 2012, seven years later. Update us on how Pete's doing. Unfortunately, Pete has to deal with the progression of the ALS. He was put on a vent, a very critical point in the journey when the disease takes away the muscle, the diaphragm. That's the fatal part. That happened to Pete two and a half years after diagnosis. Pete made a choice at that point. He was 29 years old to have a tracheotomy and go on a ventilator, which we all would call life support. He's been on that for five years. But that didn't stop the disease from rummaging through his body. And today, he has lost almost every voluntary function in his body. But his heart is still strong and loving, and his brain is still working. And we get to enjoy living with Pete every day, even if it's only for an hour. Take us back to 2012. Peter had graduated from Boston College, where he was a star athlete playing Division I baseball for Boston College. At that time, he was 27. Give us a glimpse into his life on the day of diagnosis. Pete, after graduating BC, went to Europe, actually, to play professionally in Europe because the dream didn't happen here by Major League Baseball. And after a couple of years, when he came home, he finally said, it's time for me to get a life, Mom. And uh, he went out and he got a job in the insurance field working for Humana. He moved to South Boston, which those of us who went to school in Boston know that's what you do. Got a beautiful girlfriend and was still playing baseball at night in the Intercity League or the Park League, as it's known in Boston. So he would work all day and then he would have a 930 game at night, take off his suit and tie, put his baseball uniform back on and enjoy his passion in life, which was being with teammates and playing baseball. He was hit with a pitch in August of 2011. That kind of started the odyssey to the diagnosis. He went to his orthopedist to have his wrist looked at, which led him to a neurologist, 
which led to the diagnosis in March of 2012. You know, when you think about the age of 27, you think you got the world by the you know what, Mm -hmm. and then you get a diagnosis like this. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the day you found out about it. We were sitting in a neurologist's office. The night before, Pete had told us we were probably going to hear that it was a pinched nerve. So that kind of gives you my state of mind when I walked into that room. Oh, it's a pinched nerve. We'll figure this out. As the doctor turned to Pete and raising his hand, eliminating different things, saying, it's not a sprain, it's not an infection, it's not Lyme disease. And then he said, it's not MS. I'll never forget when he said, it's not lupus. I'm thinking to myself, where is he going with? I mean, now we're talking about disease. And then he put his hands on his knees and looked right at Pete and said, I do not know how to tell a 27-year-old this. You have ALS. And Candy, honestly, at that moment, I have come to terms with this, and I think it's a force that drives me every day. But I am here to say I didn't know what ALS was. I knew two things. I knew it was bad. I think we all kind of knew Lou Gehrig's disease was bad. We knew baseball, so we knew Lou Gehrig. My husband turns to the doctor and says, well, what do we do now? Then it started to unravel like an onion. The peels started coming off. And he said, well, I'm sorry to say we've had no progress in the fight against this disease. There's no treatment, no cure. The prognosis is two to five years to live. And during that time, all his muscles will be rendered useless. Eventually, it's going to kill him. It's 100 percent fatal. When you heard these words, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. kid's your baby, for starters. He may be 27 years old, living large in South Boston, but he's your baby. He lived a pretty large 27 years. He played football, hockey, and baseball at St. John's Prep up in Danvers, which is not only an academically hard school, but an athletically very competitive school. And he played all four sports all four years that he was there. And, And really well. And captained them, too. And then when he went to BC, he had mountains and mountains of friends. During the summers, if you're in Division I, you play summer ball. Pete got to play summer ball in Greenwich, Connecticut, Bethesda, Maryland. And between his junior and senior year, he played in Honolulu, Hawaii. Then he had the experience of going to Europe and playing in Europe and visiting all his friends that were playing in all different countries in Europe. So when he came back to get a nine-to-five job, He had already lived this enormous life. And to be perfectly honest with you, John and I still had those two beach chairs in the back of our car still going to every game that we possibly could. We were right by his side for all that time. I look back and reflect on that as a blessing because the day that he was diagnosed, the next morning I woke up and I looked at my husband and the first thing that came out of my mouth was, what a blessing it is that I have no regrets that we were there in the sidelines for every part of his 27 years. You know, nobody would have blamed you if you had decided that you were going to stay in that bed Mm -hmm. and cry for a long time. Mm -hmm. I could still be doing that today, to be perfectly honest. Why didn't you? Because of Pete. Pete directed us that night. He looked right at us and spoke to us like he told us we were his new team, the ALS community was his new team. There'll be no whining. There'll be no wallowing. Those words are so ingrained in my head because I remember thinking, what 27-year-old use wallowing? Just like a leader does, he set the vision. 
He said, we are going to change the trajectory of this disease. Now, did he know how he was going to do it? Did he vision the night ice bucket challenge? Absolutely not. But his next words were so important. We're going to get to work. And that is a life lesson that I talk a lot about. He knew he was given this for a reason, but he knew that he wasn't going to attain his goal unless we got to work. Next morning, here I am feeling bad about myself, but there he is already on the computer, already with the pen and paper in hand, the pros, the cons, the roadmap of what we're going to do, how we're going to do this, gathering his people, his family, our close friends, and literally being the leader. And that still carries me to this day. ALS is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. You Mm -hmm. mentioned that earlier in the interview. After the New York Yankees star diagnosed in 1939 on his 36th birthday, there's a very famous speech that Lou Gehrig gave. And I wonder, did Pete ever watch it? Oh, he not only watched it, Pete reached out to Jonathan Eig, who actually wrote the book of The Luckiest Man Alive. Pete had a plaque of Lou Gehrig's speech that when he would leave, when he could lift his hands and he'd be in his wheelchair and we would take him out the door, just like the Notre Dame We Are Champions, he would hit it every time he would leave. Lou Gehrig played a very big role in Pete's life. I have to tell you, though, one of the most profound ways that Lou Gehrig affected Pete was that Pete said to us, he goes, people remember Lou Gehrig, Mom, but they remember him talking, walking, wearing a baseball uniform. That's not the reality of this disease. That was such an awakening moment for me. And then he went on to say, so what we're going to do is we're going to show people what this disease does to me. Because he knew he was chosen. By that point, he had identified, okay, I get it. I get it. Whatever you believe in, the higher power, to my family, it happens to be God, whatever that may be for you. He was working out at a very high level doing Tough mutters, So he knew he was this physical specimen, and he knew what this disease was about to do to him. ALS is a very visible disease, and nobody had ever shown people what happens to one's body. He called Steve Gleason down in New Orleans, who was a professional football player with the New Orleans Saints, who was about a year ahead of him in diagnosis and really was being mentored by Steve as far as building Team Freight Train and documenting it on social media. Pete was a millennial, a kid brought up with social media. So he knew we're going to journal online. We're going to journal on Facebook. And that's what we did. Team Freight Train. Tell me how it came together. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com.
It started with my husband back in the 70s that that was his nickname because our last name is Freighties and my husband was always called Freight Train. My boys kind of picked that up. He was an athlete also. Let's talk about the moment that the Ice Bucket Challenge became a phenomenon. Pat Quinn had been diagnosed with ALS at age 30 in New York, had reached out to Pete. He was a year behind Pete. And Pete was mentoring Pat to build Quinn for the Win is the name of his followers. Pete kind of said, you got to scream from the highest mountain and tell everyone. It's very well documented that the Ice Bucket Challenge in and of itself had been around for about eight months on the internet. When it crossed Pat's feed, he said, we've got to get this to Pete. Pete had lost his voice by this time. We can't forget that this disease was still ravaging his body. He was typing on his computer with his eyes, telling us that we're going to start seeing people pour ice water over their heads. And I remember thinking to myself, what is he talking about? And then his three words, this is it. This is what I was talking about two and a half years ago, the night of diagnosis, that we're going to change the trajectory. This is the vehicle we're going to do it with. $200 million. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband for a living does fundraising for national nonprofits. And I chatted with him last night before interviewing you today. And he said, in that world to this day, it is considered the highest peak of the mountain, the greatest fundraising effort. And ALS, as you said, was really not known to people. Pete did it. He put a face to ALS. He gave a voice to a group of people that hadn't been heard. The reason is because they couldn't communicate with each other. You and I both being communication gurus, we get that. We understand the value of communication. Well, these people prior to social media and the Internet had no means by which to gather. If you're going to try to get something done, you get together with like-minded people and you make a statement. They couldn't type letters or write letters to each other anymore. They couldn't talk on the telephone with each other. Timing is everything in life. And I think in 2012, Facebook was there, but it wasn't what it is today. And in 2014, video was rather novel on Facebook. The stars aligned. We call it ALS's time. It was their time. And look where we are now. You mention phases in Pete's progression through ALS. You just talked about at that time he couldn't speak. Can you tell me, what does he say this is like? Do you just wake up one morning and you can't lift your hand? Do you wake up one morning and you can't talk? Are these just a series of losses, one right after the other? How does it look and feel? In Pete's case, he was feeling tired, and then he had a foot drop, and then he couldn't button his shirt. Those types of symptoms started to manifest. His bat speed had slowed down, and the ball hit him in the wrist. Well, that really got him an earlier diagnosis because it led him to the diagnosis. What does it feel like? I will tell you that my son has articulated to both his father and I that it feels like being buried alive, if you can well imagine that, because your brain is intact. Your heart is beating, but you can't yell, you can't lift your arm, you can't kick. And when I talk to groups, I try to explain to them, you need to understand this. When you get the diagnosis of ALS, when they look at you and say you have ALS, you know for a fact, you know for 100%, and so doesn't your family members and your village, that today's the best day for the rest of your life. 
because the loss will be a little more tomorrow. We have the little days where maybe he couldn't text anymore. I remember the day that he walked in and he dropped his keys to his car on the table like a mic drop, knowing that he no longer had the agility for the gas pedal and he couldn't drive anymore. And then there's the large ones, the day where he is literally being carried around the house and they know the day they go into a wheelchair, they're never getting out. The day they have a feeding tube put in. I'll never forget the last time he said, Mom, look at this disease is a terrorist. And that is the word I use for it. And yet this young man of yours decided that he was going to live his life to the fullest. Mm -hmm. He married that beautiful girl. He sure did. He has a child. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about Lucy? Uh, so <laughs> She says uh, as a very proud Nana. Yes, I do. <laughs> This is a journey that nobody should ever go on. This disease and what it does to the patient and the loved ones is one that is almost inexplicable, to be perfectly honest with you. But the blessings and the joy, you cannot talk about a, such a journey without talking about the gifts that you're given. If Lucy Frades isn't the largest gift of them all, Lucy just celebrated her fifth birthday on August 31st. It was a joyful beautiful celebration. That little girl is all the good of her mother and father wrapped up into one. She's not only outstandingly beautiful, if I may say so, but she has the spirit of her dad. And it's funny, now that she's five, people who see her, they just can't believe her spirit, how much aligned it is with her dad's. You have spent the last seven years traveling all around the world, spreading mm -hmm. the message to CEOs, to senators, to congressmen and women, to doctors, to government authorities. What do you say? Obviously, you tell your story and Pete's story, but what breaks through? How do you get their attention? You meet a lot of children of ALS patients or a lot of spouses of ALS patients. But when you look in the eyes of the FDA neurological panel and you're talking with 60 ALS advocates and the patients are men in their 60s or women in their 70s or the physicians or the therapists. And then you sit there and you look at them and you say, I'm a mother. And remember, I was 52 years old when Pete was diagnosed. And I sat there and looked at them and said, I'm a mother. And I end every single time with, you need to internalize my story. And you need to understand that this is going to take my son away. I have grieved, and my family has grieved every day for the past seven and a half years. We know what the end game is. Look, there's been lots of strides, and I definitely want to talk about all the good that's been done. But for my son, he told me the night of diagnosis, all the work that we're going to do is not going to be in time for me. That's how far behind the eight ball this disease was in terms of research and dollars. Today, I come to you with momentum and hope beneath my wings. The things that have happened since Ice Bucket are remarkable. Made possible in large part to the fact that $200 million went to research mm -hmm. and advocacy for a disease that had been in the dark for so long. Give us an update on this work. Prior to 2014, we only had one gene associated with ALS, SOD1, that was found in 1995. The importance of finding these genomes is those are the targets for drugs and therapy. Since 2014, 
not only Ice Bucket Challenge money, but other funds that have come in because of it, we have found five new genes. So you have one gene in 150 years of the history of this disease, and you have five in five years. One of the most significant pieces of that is the $89 million of that money that went to these researchers and scientists. They have gotten matching funds and have gotten an additional $100 million. So that $89 million is now $189 million that's in the research community. And today, MGH, where we have an amazing ALS clinic and ALS research center at Mass General Hospital here in Boston, and Dr. Merit Sakovich, who is the director of neurology at MGH, has just announced that there are 86 drugs and therapies in the pipeline right now for ALS. Now our challenge is to get those trials funded, to get them from bench to patient as quickly as possible. You know, I look at your life's work now, and I know that you're flying all over the world, spreading this message, doing what you can. In the quietest moments between you and your husband, what does that feel like? It's full of mixed emotions, I have to be perfectly honest with you. We are going to lose our son. He is very sick. To see what they do medically to him every day is painful. It's so painful to watch as a mother. What I do for him, no mother should have to do. No 34-year-old child should see their mother doing these things to him. But I have to tell you, when you have children, what are your greatest hopes for them? That they make a good imprint on this world that they do good for other people, that they're a servant leader, that they understand that we're all put on this earth to be kind to each other, to respect each other, and to help those in need. And we look at each other and we cry both tears of sadness, but we cry tears of joy because look at what this child of ours has done. Look at the lives that he has impacted. Look at the people that he has inspired. How can one not be filled with immense pride and immense joy because the world is just a little bit better place because of Pete Frades? What is your advice to a mom who might be listening to this show right now? Maybe her child has been diagnosed with ALS in an earlier year like your son was. Or maybe it's another disease mm -hmm. that's, that's captured this child's life. What do you mm -hmm. say to a mom? What do you wish you knew when you first got started on this journey? The most important thing that they need to realize is that there's no judgment on them. They need to understand that if it is staying in bed all day and crying, if that's how they make it through the day, then that is how they make it through the day. If they want to go out and advocate, they go out and advocate. They need to be kind to themselves because my first words out of my mouth, what did I do wrong? And that is a mother's first reaction. When I was carrying them, what did I expose them to? Whatever it may be, you're going to blame yourself first. And I know that because I did that. I had nurses that had to literally shake me out of it and say, do not blame yourself. She needs to give herself a break. She needs to care and love that child for every second of every day. 
She needs to live in the present. Your child is here now. The greatest gift that he's given me is to live in the present, and the word is live. My son, yeah, he's as sick as they come, but he's still alive today. He's still living. He's still looking at his daughter. He's still getting a kiss from his daughter tonight. He'll watch a movie with her before she goes to bed tonight, just like he has for the last five years. Maybe tomorrow that might not happen, but we have today. When you are sitting alone with your son, what happens between you? It's unspoken. Pete can no longer communicate. So it's just us looking in each other's eyes with knowledge and trust and most of all love. His physicality is so evident to me. He has a little pimple inside his head right here because when I used to comb his hair when he was a little boy and I would nick it with a comb, he would yell at me. Guess what? That bump is still there and his cowlick is still there. When we're together, I just wrap my arms around him. He's my baby, but he's so much more than that now. He knows how proud I am of him. You know, there are many different definitions for success in your life, in your work as a mother. What does success mean for you? My greatest success are my three children. Here I have my middle child who is sick, my daughter who graduated BC and went on to become an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, had been there for 10 years and was a vice president. She had been in London for four years and was working on Wall Street. The week after Pete was diagnosed, she retired. Her and her husband moved a mile away from us. She said to me, Mom, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving Dad. But most importantly, I'm going to be here for the rest of my brother's life. I want to be with him. And then there's my younger son, who had just graduated college and was in his first job and, and was living in Charlestown, just starting his career in life. Literally the day that Pete was diagnosed, Andrew quit his job, broke his lease, moved back up into his childhood bedroom, and for the next three years, he was Pete's full-time caregiver. I look at these three amazing humans that I have put on this earth. That's the greatest success of all. Team Freight Train rolls on. It sure does. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story today. Nancy Frades, thank you so much for being on the story behind her success. Thank you, Candy. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?